Section 14 of Secrets of the Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maggie Travers. Secrets of the Woods by William J. Long. Section 14 The Old Beech Partridge. Part 3. But when the spring came, and the long rolling drum calls began to throb through the budding woods, he retired to his middle range on the ridge, and marched from one end to the other, driving every other cock-grouse out of hearing, and drubbing him soundly if he dared resist. Then, after a triumph, you would hear his loud drum call rolling through the May splendor, calling as many wives as possible to share his rich living. He had two drumming logs on this range, as I soon discovered, and once, while he was drumming on one log, I hid near the other and imitated his call fairly well by beating my hands on a blown bladder that I had buttoned under my jacket. The roll of a grouse drum is a curiously muffled sound. It is often hard to determine the spot or even the direction whence it comes, and it always sounds much further away than it really is. This may have deceived the old beech partridge at first into thinking he heard some other bird far away, on a ridge across the valley where he had no concern, for presently he drummed again on his own log. I answered it promptly, rolling back a defiance and also telling any hen-grouse on the range that here was another candidate willing to strut and spread his tail and lift the resplendent ruff about his neck to win his way into her good graces if she would but come to his drumming-log and see him. Some suspicion that a rival had come to his range must have entered the old beech partridge's head, for there was a long silence in which I could fancy him standing up straight and stiff on his drumming-log, listening intently to locate the daring intruder, and holding down his bubbling wrath with difficulty. Without waiting for him to drum again, I beat out a challenge. The roll had barely ceased when he came darting up the ridge, glancing like a bolt among the thick branches, and plunged down by his own log, where he drew himself up with marvelous suddenness to listen and watch for the intruder. He seemed relieved that the log was not occupied, but he was still full of wrath and suspicion. He glided and dodged all about the place, looking and listening. Then he sprang to his log, and, without waiting to strut and spread his gorgeous feathers as usual, he rolled out the long call, drawing himself up straight the instant it was done, turning his head from side to side to catch the first beat of his rival's answer. Come out if you dare. Drum if you dare. Oh, you coward. And he hopped five or six high, excited hops, like a rooster before a storm, to the other end of the log. And again his quick throbbing drum call rolled through the woods. Though I was near enough to see him clearly without my field-glasses, I could not even then, nor at any other time when I have watched grouse drumming, determine just how the call is given. After a little while the excitement of a suspected rival's presence wore away, and he grew exultant, thinking that he had driven the rascal out of his woods. He strutted back and forth on the log, trailing his wings, spreading wide his beautiful tail, lifting his crest in his resplendent ruff, Suddenly, he would draw himself up. There would be a flash of his wings up and down that no eye could follow, and I would hear a single throb of his drum. Another flash and another throb. 
then faster and faster, till he seemed to have two or three pairs of wings, whirring and running together like the spokes of a swift-moving wheel, and the drum-beats rolled together into a long call and died away in the woods. Generally, he stood up on his toes, as a rooster does when he flaps his wings before crowing. Rarely, he crouched down close to the log, but I doubt if he beat the wood with his wings, as is often claimed. Yet the two logs were different. One was dry and hard, the other moldy and moss-grown, and the drum calls were as different as the two logs. After a time I could tell by the sound which log he was using at the first beat of his wings, but that, I think, was a matter of resonance, a kind of sounding-board effect, and not because the two sounded differently as he beat them. The call is undoubtedly made either by striking the wings together over his back, or, as I am inclined to believe, by striking them on the downbeat against his own sides. Once I heard a wounded bird give three or four beats of his drum call, and when I went into the grapevine thicket where he had fallen, I found him lying flat on his back, beating his sides with his wings. Whenever he drums he first struts, because he knows not how many pairs of bright eyes are watching him shyly out of the coverts. Once, when I had watched him strut and drum a few times, the leaves rustled and two hen-grouse emerged from opposite sides into the little opening where his log was. Then he strutted with greater vanity than before, while the two hen-grouse went gliding about the place, searching for seeds apparently, but in reality watching his every movement out of their eye-corners and admiring him to his heart's content. In winter I used to follow his trail through the snow to find what he had been doing and what he had found to eat in nature's scarce time. His worst enemies, the man and his dog, were no longer to be feared, being restrained by law, and he roamed the woods with greater freedom than ever. He seemed to know that he was safe at this time, and more than once I trailed him up to his hiding and saw him whir away through the open woods, sending down a shower of snow behind him, as if in that curious way to hide his line of flight from my eyes. There were other enemies, however, whom no law restrained save the universal wood laws of fear and hunger. Often I found the trail of a fox crossing his in the snow, and once I followed a double trail, fox over grouse, for nearly half a mile. The fox had struck the trail late the previous afternoon, and followed it into a bullbriar thicket, in the midst of which was a great cedar in which the old beech partridge roosted. The fox went twice around the tree, halting and looking up, then went straight away to the swamp, as if he knew it was of no use to watch longer. Rarely, when the snow was deep, I found the place where he, or some other grouse, went to sleep on the ground. He would plunge down from a tree into the soft snow, driving into it head first for three or four feet, then turn around and settle down in his white, warm chamber for the night. I would find the small hole where he plunged in at evening, and near it the great hole where he burst out when the light waked him. Taking my direction from his wing prints in the snow, I would follow to find where he lit, and then trace him on his morning wanderings. One would think that this might be a dangerous proceeding, sleeping on the ground with no protection but the snow, and a score of hungry enemies prowling about the woods. But the grouse knows well that when the storms are out, his enemies stay close at home, not being able to see or smell, and therefore afraid each one of his own enemies. 
there is always a truce in the woods during a snowstorm and that is the reason why a grouse goes to sleep in the snow only while the flakes are still falling when the storm is over and the snow has settled a bit the fox will be abroad again and then the grouse sleeps in the evergreens once however the old beech partridge miscalculated the storm ceased early in the evening and hunger drove the fox out on a night when ordinarily he would have stayed under cover sometime about daybreak before yet the light had penetrated to where the old beech partridge was sleeping the fox found a hole in the snow which told him that just in front of his hungry nose a grouse was hidden all unconscious of danger i found the spot trailing the fox a few hours later how cautious he was the sly trail was eloquent with hunger and anticipation a few feet away from the promising hole he had stopped looking keenly over the snow to find some suspicious roundness on the smooth surface ah there it was just by the edge of a juniper thicket he crouched down stole forward pushing a deep trail with his body settling himself firmly and sprang and there just beside the hole his paws had made in the snow was another hole where the grouse had burst out scattering snow all over his enemy who had miscalculated by a foot and thundered away to the safety and shelter of the pines there was another enemy who ought to have known better following the old beech partridge all one early spring when snow was deep and food scarce one day in crossing the partridge's southern range i met a small boy a keen little fellow with the instincts of a fox for hunting he had always something interesting afoot minks or muskrats or a skunk or a big owl so i hailed him with joy hello johnny what you after today bears but he only shook his head a bit sheepishly i thought and talked of all other things except the one that he was thinking about and presently he vanished down the old road one of his jacket pockets bulged more than the other and i knew there was a trap in it late that afternoon i crossed his trail and having nothing more interesting to do followed it it led straight to the bullbriar thicket where the old beech partridge roosted i had searched for it many times in vain before the fox led me to it but johnny in some of his prowlings had found tracks and a feather or two under a cedar branch and knew just what it meant his trap was there in the very spot where the night before the old beech partridge had stood when he jumped for the lowest limb corn was scattered liberally about and a blue jay that had followed johnny was already fast in the trap caught at the base of his bill just under the eyes he had sprung the trap in pecking at some corn that was fastened cunningly to the pan by fine wire when i took the jay carefully from the trap he played possum lying limp in my hand till my grip relaxed when he flew to a branch over my head squalled and upbraided me for having anything to do with such abominable inventions i hung the trap to a low limb of the cedar with a note in its jaws telling johnny to come and see me next day he came at dusk shamefaced and i read him a lecture on fair play and the difference between a thieving mink and an honest partridge but he chuckled over the blue jay and i doubted the withholding power of a mere lecture so to even matters i hinted of an otter slide i had discovered and of a saturday afternoon tramp together twenty times he told me he had tried to snare the old beech partridge 
when he saw the otter slide he forswore traps and snares for birds and i left the place soon after with good hopes for the grouse knowing that i had spiked the guns of his most dangerous enemy years later i crossed the old pasture and went straight to the bullbriar tangle there were tracks of a grouse in the snow blunt tracks that rested lightly on the snow whiteness showing that nature remembered his necessity and had caused his new snowshoes to grow famously i hurried to the brook a hundred memories thronging over me of happy days and rare sights when the wood folk revealed their little secrets in the midst of them tweet tweet and with a thunder of wings a grouse whirred away wild and gray as the rare bird that lived there years before and when i questioned a hunter he said that old beech partridge oh yes he's there he'll stay there too till he dies of old age cause you see mister there ain't nobody in these parts spry enough to catch him end of section fourteen recording by maggie travers